We've been <clears throat> making our way somewhat slowly through the first chapter of Mark. Um, next week, hopefully, we'll pick up the pace a little bit, and um, in the future, we'll take larger sections. But there's so much foundational truth here as we are getting started in the book of Mark. I've been looking at this on Sunday nights over the last several weeks, if you've been with us. And this morning is a, is a great text about discipleship and Jesus calling the first disciples. What does it mean to follow Jesus? If a friend or coworker were to give you that, a golden gospel opportunity and ask you that question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Would you know what that involves? Or maybe you're here because you're visiting. Uh, maybe you're here visiting family and you are not a follower of Christ. Do you know what it means to follow Jesus? And here we have that very fundamental question lurking behind Christ's call Uh, his simple call to follow me when he gave that to these four disciples. Jesus called Andrew, Peter, James, and John, and his call was simple. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And as the gospel of Mark progresses, we see this call more fully developed. We understand more of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. But today we see that Christ's authoritative call to his first disciples, like his call to us today demands a response to follow him and to fish men, to follow Christ and to become fishers of men. So turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 1, and we'll read 16 through 20. But before we do, let me pause and pray as we approach God's holy word. Let us pray. Gracious God, it is a privilege to have your word before us in our language and in a way that we can understand it. We thank you that your word is inerrant that it is clear that we can understand it, that you have given it to us for our spiritual life. Lord, we ask that as your Holy Spirit has inspired this word, these words of truth, God's words that are before us, may your Holy Spirit today illuminate it to our hearts, and may we leave changed because of the work of your word and spirit within us, O God, we ask. Please now bless the preaching of the word for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this morning. This message this morning is about discipleship. It's the account of Jesus calling his first disciples. Ironically, the word discipleship is not found in Scripture, but it's very much a biblical concept. As Christ's followers, we're called disciples. And as we think about how to be faithful followers of Christ, we look to Christ's life, His teaching, and His interaction with His followers, His disciples, and think about how that we might become better followers of Christ how that we can become better disciples through the process that we know as discipleship. 
As we look at this text, we see similarities between the calls of these two sets of brothers. Jesus called them, and immediately they responded. They left what they were doing and followed Jesus Christ. I want to look at this text under two simple headings, the call issued and the response required. For any time Jesus calls, there is a response that's required. When he says, follow me, it demands a response. There's several things we need to note about this call that Jesus issued. First of all, it's an authoritative call because of who gave it, because of it that it came from Jesus Christ. As I've said already in the, in the opening uh, verses of Mark, we see that Mark reveals Jesus Christ to us a little bit at a time. And over these, over this, in this chapter and in the coming chapters, we'll see Christ's authority revealed more and more. We'll see it revealed over the unclean spirits, Christ's authority over disease, Christ's authority over the storms. We see this authority idea, kind of this overarching theme over these opening chapters of Mark. And here, it's, it's shown to us in this call. We think of God's calling of these men as part of his inner circle, and it, it may seem rather unremarkable to us. But put yourself in their shoes. They had likely had some encounter with Jesus prior to this, although Mark doesn't tell us about it. But we look at the first chapter of John, and we know that Andrew was one of the disciples, the followers of John the Baptist. Of course, we know that John the Baptist was the herald of Christ, the forerunner of Christ. And in those immortal words that John the Baptist spoke, Behold, the Lamb of God. Andrew heard those words. And he was so excited, he ran to tell his brother Peter. And he says, Look, come see this man. He is the Messiah, which is called the Christ. We have found him. And then he brings Peter to Jesus. But... The, the writer of Mark, Mark tells us, he doesn't give us that backstory. He just tells us simply of the call and of their response. And it seems that he wants to show us the straightforwardness of the call and their response that was immediate to that call. They did recognize Christ as the Messiah, and they wasted no time in laying aside what they were doing and following him. And nor should we. We have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history and, and a full understanding that Christ is God, that Jesus is Lord, and He demands that of us. The earth is the Lord's. In the previous verse, in verse 15, He has already spoken of His dominion, saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And as the King, we owe Him all of our allegiance, all of our obedience. As God, Jesus has the right to issue such a call to follow me. The call of Christ is authoritative. Secondly, we see that, that this call was specific. It was specific in who it was to, and it was specific in the work that they were called to do. We see here four men, two sets of brothers. Three of them, we know, went on to become part of the inner circle Peter, James, and John were those that were with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the three disciples that were with Jesus. They were the ones that were right there with Jesus when he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. They were there in the garden in the, on the night of his agony. They were really Jesus' top guys in a sense. 
we know, of course, that Jesus called eight other disciples to form the, the 12 disciples. And with the exception of Judas, who betrayed him, these men went on to establish the church, to write scripture, to plant churches, to proclaim the glorious truth of the resurrected Christ to the first century world. But these guys, what an unlikely lot these guys were. Just four fishermen. If we were going to assemble a team, if I made you a focus group and I asked for feedback from you about what kind of a team that Jesus needed to assemble to establish his church in the first century, I don't think we would pick these four fishermen on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We would probably look for men that were were smart, were well-educated, were well-spoken, were well-connected politically and socially. Those are the kinds of people you would want on your team, I think. That's what I would think. But that's not God's way. Scripture teaches us again and again that it's those who are... It's not those who are wise in the eyes of the world that Jesus chooses to accomplish his work. It's often the uneducated, the weak, those who the world typically scorns that God uses to build his kingdom. Remember what the officials in Jerusalem said about the two, two of these men in the book of Acts. When Peter and John were preaching and proclaiming and, and people were being saved by the hundreds... They said in Acts 4.13 that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's the difference. They had been with Jesus. That's what mattered. The rulers of the synagogue didn't say, look how smart these men are or how many languages they know. They said, no, we recognize a difference in these men because they had been with Jesus. And that's God's way. God is more glorified when it's clear that we are what we are, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of what God has done in us. God is most glorified when His power and glory is revealed in us. And Christ is still calling disciples, not in the same sense as He called these men to carry His mission forward to establish the church but he's still calling you and me to follow him. He calls all Christians to follow him, to be disciples, to be followers. Today, God issues a specific, effectual call which convinces us of our sin and misery and enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renews our wills so that we might be enabled to embrace Jesus Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. This call is to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus, and to follow Him. If you have not heard that call, it's right here in God's Word, and I issue it to you to come to Christ. This call is also specific in that it was a call to a specific work. Jesus was very intentional in what He said to these men as they were actively engaged in their trade of fishing. Two of them were casting a net. Two of them were mending their nets in preparation for fishing. Jesus tells them to go and be fishers of men. He would make them to become fishers of men. Instead of gathering fish into nets for their own sustenance and their own food and and their own livelihood to sell in the market, they would learn to gather lost men into the safety net of salvation. 
They would proclaim the message of the gospel far and wide so that those dead in their sins could hear the glorious message of the gospel and find new life in Christ. Not only was this call authoritative and specific, but it was an open-ended call. Notice that Jesus did not say, hey, hang out with me for three years and I'll teach you some cool life hacks and then you can go back to fishing when you're done. Or he didn't say, you know, I'll make you to be the best fisherman ever. You'll have wealth, you'll have influence, you'll have power. No, he issued a call that was simply follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There was certain ambiguity to that call. It was open-ended. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I hate ambiguity. I like to know what I sign up for. If somebody asks something of me, I like to know what's involved. That seems to make sense. I once worked with a guy who, he was pretty good at reading people, and I think he knew something about my personality. And so he took a nickel and he set it on its edge, kind of between our two cubicles. And he said, that bothers you, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, it does. Because it seemed inevitable that that nickel was going to fall over, so I would just rather knock it over and put it back in my pocket so it didn't irritate me sitting there. So he chuckled and had a, had a laugh at my expense, and so to spite him, I left that nickel there, and if it fell over, I would set it up and try to, you know, kind of keep that in between us. But we like to know what's, what's going to happen. But Christ's call is open-ended here. He just says to follow me. It's open-ended in time. He doesn't say that it's for a specific time period because it's forever. It's open-ended in terms of cost. He asked these men to leave their life, their former life, their their livelihood even. It was open-ended in commitment. It's a lifetime commitment. Following Jesus involves total commitment. Jesus doesn't want part of you. He wants your all. He wants your very life. He wants you to follow him even when you can't see the whole way. We must follow him because we trust him as our good shepherd who will protect us along the way. Because of the the authority of Christ and issuing this specific yet open-ended call, there's a response that's required. When we encounter Jesus Christ, as you are encountering Christ in His Word here this morning, there is a response required. And you will not leave, the, leave here the same. Because either you respond in faith to His call and follow Him, or you reject Him and are hardened. There is a response that is required. The first thing about that response is that you have to follow a new leader. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were doing what fishermen do. They were fishing. Likely they were self-employed, doing what their fathers had taught them. James and John even had their father with them. But Jesus, when Jesus called them, it says they left their nets. They left all that aside and followed him. They followed their leader, Jesus Christ. I think of the language that Scripture uses for a man and a woman when they get married. It says that, A man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And that little phrase of leave and cleave, my wife and I remind each other of that. And we think of that in terms of young people as they approach marriage. That it's important for them to establish their own home and to be accountable to God and to each other. 
And in a similar way, we must leave the things of this world and cling tightly to Jesus Christ. We must, like these men, recognize Christ's authority over us, leave the ways of the world, and follow Jesus as our new leader. Of course, this is not to say that if you're an engineer or an insurance agent or a plumber or whatever it is that you do, that you have to quit that occupation like these men did. But rather, you follow a new master within that vocation. God does sometimes call men and women to lives of service, to leave their job, to go to the mission field, to serve Him in some way. And I pray that God would do that among us. Wouldn't that be wonderful if God would call from our own midst people to serve Him on the mission field or to fill the pastorate somewhere? But typically, God continues to allow us to work in a secular occupation, recognizing that we're serving Christ. We're following Him as our master and leader within that occupation. Today, we must realize that we are not our own. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your temple is, or your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, he said. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. John Calvin plays off of that term in, in such beautiful language in his little book on the Christian life where he says, If we are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee and what we must direct our whole lives toward. We are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason nor our will, neither our reason nor our will should dominate our plans and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not make the gratification of our flesh our end. We are not our own. Therefore, as much as possible, let us forget ourselves and our own interests. That's a challenge, to forget our own interests and realize that we are not our own, but we are God's. We belong to Him. Calvin goes on. He says, therefore, let us live and die to Him. We are God's. Therefore, let his wisdom and his will govern all our actions. We belong to God. Following Christ means that you recognize him as the leader and as the one that owns you. The response to Christ's call to follow him doesn't just involve a new leader, but it involves a new priority. As we see, these men were following their own interests, not sinful interests. They were doing what they did. They were fishermen. But Jesus gave them a new priority, a new focus, a new job. They were to fish for men. They were to put Christ's mission on their bathroom mirror and make his priorities their priorities. No longer did they lay awake at night and think about, how can I catch more fish tomorrow? They should lay awake at night and think about, how can I catch men for Jesus Christ? At least that's what they were supposed to do. But we know from reading the the Gospels that Good old Peter sometimes wavered in his discipleship, sometimes wavered in his devotion to Christ. Actually, Peter had some bad ideas at times. He wasn't always crystal clear in understanding who Jesus was. He wavered in his commitment. In Christ's darkest hour, he fell asleep. And while Jesus was facing false accusations at his trial, Peter was there, but he denied him. After Jesus was crucified, Peter went back to fishing. He was not the perfect disciple. Peter also knew that Jesus is the good shepherd who continually calls his sheep 
back to himself. And I like to think about Peter's life and Peter as an old man reflecting on his somewhat, um, uh, sometimes his divided discipleship. When we read in 2 Peter where he says, For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Often in Scripture we are compared to sheep. Sheep are easily distracted. Sheep need help finding pasture and water. They need, they need help defending. They need somebody to defend them because they can't defend themselves. Sheep are, sheep are kind of dumb. But sometimes there's another animal that I think sometimes we could maybe compare ourselves to, and that's cats. Now, that may seem strange to you. I don't know if there's cat, cat people in the audience here this morning. But, you know, cats really have a mind of their own. And I recently read a quote about it. I got this idea from an author, and he said that, that he thinks that he wonders if the reason that Isaiah said that all we like sheep have gone astray because he wasn't around cats very much. He said, Sheep tend to go astray because they are dumbly distracted. That's a little like us. And then he goes on to say, Cats go astray because they are smug investors in their own narcissistic autonomy. That's a lot like us. I think there's some truth here. Because sometimes we, we don't just go astray because we're dumb or we're ignorant. Sometimes we go our own way because we want to. Why is sin so attractive to us? Because we like it. And that's to our shame, but that's what we fight against in this Christian life. That's what we fight against as we strive to be followers of Jesus Christ. I had a pastor who would often say about Romans 12:1. That the problem with a living sacrifice is, is that it keeps getting down from the altar. And we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, but sometimes we're divided in our discipleship. So what do we do when, on those days when we feel, don't feel like following? When we're too discouraged or depressed or tempted? And it's frankly just easier to forget the priority of following Jesus. It's then that we must remember that following Jesus means that we're headed in a new direction. We're not following the ways of sin anymore. We're not following our own interests, but we're following Jesus Christ. He is our leader, and we're going in a new direction. Scripture tells us that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Sometimes you don't feel very new, but that is our life in Christ. And if you're following somebody in a certain direction, you better have your eyes on your leader. Now, I imagine every parent in here could testify with me that no matter how good of a pep talk you give your children before you go into the store about staying with you, so often they find something else that captures their interests. And before you know it, you turn around and they're not there and you think you've lost them. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we must look to him. We have to keep our eyes on our leader. We must look to him as our Lord and master, the one who has authority to call us, but we must also look to him as our savior, the one who gave himself for us. He's the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And that's not to say there's not effort involved in this life of discipleship. It's not to say that it's easy to follow Christ. It's not. There's a cost to it. But we must keep our eyes on Christ. Philippians tells us that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. 
to will and to work for His good pleasure. We have to work out what He works in. There is effort involved. This effort means dying to ourself. Later in the book of Mark, we read in chapter 8 where Jesus really defines this call of discipleship. And He says that if, the, if His disciples are to come after Him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Him. There is a cost to discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during the time of World War II and spent his days in prison and, and ultimately died in a prison camp just weeks before the Allies uh, freed Germany. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the cost of discipleship. He says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We must die to our own self-interest. We do that by recognizing the great love and the interest that Christ has in us. When we think of following Christ, though, we must never cheapen his call to make it less costly. And that's what Bonhoeffer fought against was this idea of cheap grace. He said cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, end of quote. We must always consider that there is a serious cost of discipleship, but we also must see the comfort of discipleship. And what I mean by that is the fact that the person who calls you, the person who authoritatively says, follow me, is the one who died for you, the one who has given himself for you. Jesus bids you to come and die, but it is because Jesus has already died for you. Was there not a great cost to following Christ for people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, those, those great missionaries from the 1950s who went into the jungles of Ecuador and of course, many of you I know know the story of Jim Elliot and four of his friends whose lives were taken on the banks of that river as they were trying to reach unreached people with the gospel. They knew that in spite of even the ultimate sacrifice of the life of Jim Elliot and his friends, and his widow knew that in spite of her own pain, and the many questions that would come with such a tragic event in our eyes that she could rest secure in God's love for her. She later wrote, Elizabeth Elliot later wrote, In my own life, I think I can honestly say that out of the deepest pain has come the strongest conviction of the presence and of the love of God. And as we know both the cost and the comfort of discipleship, it's then that we can become fishers of men. I think for many of us, the idea of evangelism scares us because we think, oh, I don't know how to share the gospel. And, and yeah, I know that Jesus said that, that this, this call of fishing for men is just, just tied somehow to following Christ, that, that Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. But we don't feel like very good fishermen. We feel like, like rookies that have never seen a, a pole or anything. But we're called to be fishers of men. But as we know Jesus Christ, and as we know the cost of discipleship and the comfort of our Savior who died for us, then we can, we can just share out of a full life knowing who Jesus is. 
This is about evangelism, but that evangelism should flow out of a life that is full of the glory of Christ. As we keep our eyes on Him, as we reflect on the goodness of God to us in Jesus Christ, along with the requirements of following Him, it's then that we can have a complete and passionate offer of the gospel to give to those who don't know Jesus. Tomorrow is the first day of a brand new year. Perhaps as I've preached this message this morning, you recognize that you've had disordered priorities in this past year. If you're like most of us, probably this last week. Perhaps you've been following your own ways more than the ways of the Master. There's no better time than right now to make corrections to that. To repent and ask God to, to reorient your life to Him. Ask God to show you places that you need to surrender to Him. Maybe it's a dark place in your soul that you don't let the light of Christ shine on very often. And you need to say, Lord, you know me anyway. Here I am. Help me in this. His mercies are new every morning. He delights in us when we seek to tap into those new morning mercies. Perhaps you just might say this morning, you know, I don't know if I've ever really repented and believed in Jesus Christ for the first time. I don't know if I've ever really heard his call where he says, follow me. There's no better time than right now to repent and believe in this master who's saying to you and to me, follow me. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this call that you issued to your disciples and how this call comes thundering across the ages to us this morning to say, follow me. Lord God, for anybody here that does not know you, I pray that they would respond in faith and repentance and follow Jesus Christ as their new leader, giving them new priorities and new direction, we ask. Bless us, Lord, as we close this year and as we look forward with anticipation to what you are doing in us in the coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.